recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christogenia Saturdays. Today is Saturday, January 17th, 2015. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel. And thank you for listening. I know that we just closed 22 weeks of Martin Luther's on the Jews and their lies, and people are saying, what, more Martin Luther, please? Well, this is a a, a crucially important story, and I pray that as it unfolds during the coming year, that people begin to realize why it should be so important and why it's so important to identity Christians today. Martin Luther set off a revolution, a religious revolution, which ultimately led to one of the most horrendous wars in history and the decimation of half of Germany. And, um, well, that's the cost of freedom. That's the way it is. That that's the um, the cost we may we may pay a greater cost in the future when we finally do when Babylon finally does fall, and we do move to free ourselves from the hand of satanic Jewry forever. Martin Luther's 95 Theses were written in 1517 and are generally considered to be the catalyst for the Protestant Reformation. However, there were certainly many related historical events and many martyrs of reform before Luther came along. Popularly, the Theses are more fully titled the 95 Theses on the Power and Efficacy of Indulgences. My own translation of the original Latin title might be A Dispute Regarding the Proclamation of the Power of Indulgences. However, in spite of its title, besides the sale of indulgences, the disputation also protests against many other clerical abuses. It especially mentions nepotism, the favoring of family members by church superiors, simony or simony, the purchase of offices within the church, usury, which had recently been allowed by Rome, and pluralism, which is the agreement that other religions have legitimacy, which allows multiculturalism and leads to ecumenism in Rome. In Rome at the time, this primarily allowed for the legitimacy of Jews. In Luther's early career, the De Medici popes, Pope Leo X specifically, was sitting in Rome and was guilty of every one of these things and far greater crimes than this. October 31st is called Reformation Day, 
which is celebrated as a religious holiday in many places in Europe. Some sources state that on this day in 1521, Luther appeared before the Deed of Worms, or Worms, as I believe it's pronounced in German. That is not true. Other sources say that October 31st was the day in 1517 that Luther had nailed his 95 theses to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany. Whether the original publication of his disputation with the Roman Catholic Church ever happened in precisely that manner is also arguable. And here we will see that several other myths about Luther should be called into question. Now, whether or not the story of the nailing of the 95 Theses to the door is true, if it actually happened in that manner, it has nevertheless for five centuries been used as a powerful symbol representing the beginnings of the Protestant Reformation. In reality, Luther appeared at the Diet of Arms, or Diet, or, or Imperial Meeting, as it was, in Worms in April of 1521, and he was released after his appearance, as he had been promised safe passage. Now, his release was a surprise, because another great reformer, John Huss, or Jan Huss, he was um, also promised safe passage, and they did not release him. They murdered him instead, and that's another story for another segment of this series. The Edict of Arms against Luther was a decree issued on May 25, 1521, by the Emperor Charles V. In part, it declared, that for this reason we forbid anyone from this time forward to dare, either by words or by deeds, to receive, defend, sustain, or favor the said Martin Luther. On the contrary, we want him to be apprehended and punished as a notorious heretic, as he deserves, to be brought personally before us, or to be securely guarded until those who have captured him inform us, whereupon we will order the appropriate manner of proceeding against the said Luther. Those who will help in his capture will be rewarded generously for their good work. And, and in the course of this evening, we will see what happened to Martin Luther when he was released from farms. Martin Luther had stood before the officials of the Church and the Empire at the Deed of Arms, which was conducted in the bishop's palace attached to St. Peter's Cathedral in the city for the purpose of hearing Luther. There, he steadfastly refused the demands that he recant his teachings and writings. If Luther had recanted at this point, then any reformation of the church could not have come about in that century. And the papal tyranny over Rome would have 
I'm sorry, the papal tyranny over Europe would have continued indefinitely. Luther was under enormous pressure to recant, and he quite courageously withstood, withstood the life-threatening situation in the presence of the emperor, just like, much like Paul in Rome. We are now going to present here an article from John Tiffany, appeared in the Barnes Review maybe seven years ago, entitled Martin Luther, A Lightning Bolt May Have Changed the World or Not. The article itself is based upon and is a brief attempt at correcting, at correcting some of the more fantastic tales of Luther's life, his conversion, and his career. Of course, the truth is much more somber, and after we present this article, we will present a more serious history of the beginning of Luther's life and career, that the early years of his life and his career, I'm sorry. Luther's reform movement, however, was much older than Martin Luther, and the full story will take much longer to present here than a single evening. However, we believe that it is of the utmost importance for identity Christians today, especially today, to understand the story of Martin Luther. This is because, although John Wycliffe and then Jan Hus were pushing for similar reforms in the church long before Luther was, Luther was successful far beyond them in convincing the people of Europe to break from a Catholic church which really did not care to reform at all. In fact, it was only getting worse. It certainly was the beast which the Revelation describes it to be. Today, we need a new Reformation. And only identity Christians can do so while adhering to the Bible that Luther so dearly loved but did not completely understand. We hope that starting with the life of Martin Luther, we can eventually move on to an understanding of what happened after Luther. What was going on in the Catholic Church that motivated Luther and how it all led to what is truly the most tragic event in medieval history, which was the Thirty Years' War, which, we, which began in 1618, 72 years after Luther's death, a war that decimated half of Germany. It, it, it killed perhaps a third of the men of Germany, wiped out half of the towns and villages, if I remember the statistics correctly. It was a horrendous war. John Tiffany was a longtime writer and frequent contributor to the Barnes Review, which has a, a checkered history but has produced a lot of good scholarship in various areas. He was assistant editor of that publication when his article appeared there in the July-August 2008 issue. Tiffany's article is introduced with the subtitle, Scholars Take a New Look at the Life of a Religious Icon. 
from his sources, he used, I'm sorry, for his sources, he used two books. The first by a German Catholic scholar and the other by a Harvard professor who was originally from East Tennessee. The first is the theses were not posted. Luther between Reform and Reformation by the German Erwin Iserloh and published by Beacon Press in 1968. The second is Martin Luther, The Christian Between God and Death by Richard Marius and published in Harvard University Press in 2000. With this, we shall proceed with Martin Luther. A lightning bolt may have changed the world. Or not, by John Tiffany, meaning that the lightning bolt story and Martin Luther's conversion may not have been accurate but may have been a fable. The um, narrative histories support the story, as we will see at the end of, in the second half of this presentation. The Protestant Reformation got rolling during the first half of the 16th century when Martin Luther, a German Catholic priest, attempted to reform the Roman Church most notably by declaring that Christians should focus upon faith as a means to salvation. He feared that through selling indulgences, the church came perilously close to selling salvation to the rich, as if they could even do that, as if, as if what the church actually does has any impact at all on the creation of God and his plan for the children of Israel. We, in identity Christianity, realize that. But the belief that the Roman Catholic Church and the Pope especially were, were the bridge between God and man and had a say in the salvation of man, that leads to tyranny over the people and the churches having bled them dry, which was actually going on in Europe in Martin Luther's time bleeding the poor, playing on their consciences by telling them that they could get their dear, beloved, deceased family members out of purgatory if they'd only give enough money to the church. That's what the indulgences were. Luther believed that the ultimate power of decision as to who would be saved was vested in God, not the church. The church responded by excommunicating Luther. I'm sorry, I'm laughing at that. Which only caused him to start up a new church, the Lutheran denomination, and to translate the Bible into the common speech of the German people so they could read it directly. The success of the Lutheran Revolution led the Roman Church to launch its own counter-reformation, which was actually led by the Jesuits, much to the relief of those who remained Catholic. With the Council of Trent, the church doctrine was modified and unified. Many of the questionable practices of the church, such as the selling of indulgences, were abolished. The Council of Trent also demanded that all Bible texts be taken literally insofar as possible. 
The intention was to make things as clear as possible to Catholics at a time when the Protestants were already separating into, two diff into different branches amid much confusion. Calvinism, the Dutch Reformed Church, and, and other splinters of Protestantism that didn't follow along with Luther. I'm sure that the enemies of Christ had a great hand in that. Without Luther, the genius of Goethe, Schiller, Bach, Kant, and Hegel could not have found expression. Without Luther's spirit, <clears throat> spirit, there would have been no Bismarck, and the growth of science would have been stunted. Freedom of speech would be almost non-existent. Thus, Luther is a hero today to Protestants, Catholics, and secularists alike. And, and if I may add, without Luther, the English Reformation could not have survived. But this is a two-edged sword. There were already many humanist thinkers in Europe. Luther, as we shall see in the later half of this presentation, had his start as one of those humanist thinkers. And humanism would eventually be a mask employed by the enemies of Christ to subvert all of Christendom. However, Wycliffe and Haas should be given more credit for the Reformation than Luther. And there were other reformers in Germany and elsewhere who were earlier or contemporary to Luther. One of them we will meet here later is, um, I believe his first name was Johann, Johann Hutton, and, and Hutton will be discussed later in this, in this evening. Another one was um, Bodenstein von Karlstadt, who we mentioned presenting the Jews and their lies, who lived from 1486 to 1541. Luther overshadowed the other German reformers because he was in many ways a moderate traditionalist. He didn't want to get rid of the, the, the he, he did want to get rid of the indulgences, the idolatry, and many of the other wrongs of the Roman Catholic Church, but he clung to the church traditions and ceremonies and, and a lot of things attached to those that the, um, the German people loved, and, and so did the German princes. Therefore, Luther was not too radical for the German princes. And Lutheran, Lutheranism is, is a departure from Roman Catholicism, but it doesn't go far enough. Back to John Tiffany. And we owe it all, <clears throat> seemingly, to a lightning bolt. But how much of what we think we know about Luther is actually a myth? And if I may interject again, somehow it never takes long for fantastic myths to envelope and eventually erode the true stories of the lives of great men. For example, George Washington never told a lie. Well, we know that's not true. And he chopped down a cherry tree and all the other tales. Most Americans can recall these fables but they know little to nothing about the real man. Tiffany proceeds. On July 2nd, 1505, 
or maybe it was June, authorities differ. Law student Martin Luther was returning from his hometown of Mansfeld, Germany, where he had been visiting his parents on his way to Erfurt, where he studied and had just successfully passed the magistrate exam. According to legend, he encountered a terrible thunderstorm, and suddenly, one or more lightning bolts hit nearby. <clears throat> Some say he himself was struck by lightning and thrown to the ground, but survived. Others claim that a friend who was with him was actually killed by the lightning. Frightened out of his wits, all versions of the story agree. Luther shouted with a hasty vow, Help, dear Saint Anna, I want to become a monk. Now, according to tradition, St. Anna was the mother of Mary and the grandmother of Jesus. It's not in Scripture. The name is a Greek rendering of the Hebrew name Hannah. The Catholics used her as the patroness of women in labor and minors, which, according to Tiffany, may be relevant because Luther's father was employed as a copper miner. So we see that Luther had a Catholic the, the traditional superstitious Catholic background as a young man. And we will see more of that later because that's a pretty, um, that, that was a great influence on his later thinking, as we shall see. With this vow, he changed course career-wise. In spite of efforts by his friends and his angry father Hans to influence him to go back to the original plan of becoming a lawyer. Or is the lightning story just a myth? According to the Catholic Encyclopedia, and I wouldn't trust them to tell the truth about Luther, but Tiffany does, Cochleus, Luther's opponent, relates that at one time he was so frightened in a field at a thunderbolt, as is commonly reported, or was in such anguish at the loss of a companion who was killed in the storm that in a short time, to the amazement of many persons, he sought admission to the order of St. Augustine. Mathesius, his first biographer, attributes it to the fatal stabbing of a friend and a terrible storm with a thunderclap. Seckendorf, who made careful research following Bavaris, a pupil of Luther, goes a step further, calling this unknown friend Alexius and describes his death to a thunderbolt. Dauburn changes this Alexius into Alexis and has him assassinated at Erfurt. Orger has, and, and these are all various writers on the life of Martin Luther, Orger has proved the existence of his friend, his name of Alexius or Alexis, his death by lightning or assassination, to be a mere legend, destitute of all historical verification. In any case, and that's the end of the Catholic Encyclopedia quote, in any case, on July 17th, Luther ended, entered Erfurt's Augustine Eremitian Cloister as a novice, and after a probation period, became a full lay monk. Two years later, he was promoted to priest. The following year, he became a professor of holy 
literature at Wittenberg. What he accomplished after that is historical, meaning that there are clear historical records. He began translating the books of the Bible and was increasingly upset by what he found out. Scripture seemed to differ considerably with the teachings of the church. And surely, Scripture could not be wrong. Therefore, he began to wonder. Was his beloved Roman church nothing more than the devil's instrument to delude? On October 31st, 1517, it has been generally believed, Luther nailed his famous 95 Theses, not all of them which were actually theses, to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg with hammer strokes that echoed throughout Christendom. This bold act of rebellion has been portrayed by artists numerous times down through the centuries, and until the 20th century, it was accepted as a fact. More than anything else, it became a symbol of the Protestant Reformation. So it was a shocker when in 1961, Catholic Luther researcher Erwin Iserloh asserted that the nailing of the theses to the door of the church belonged merely to the realm of legends. Of course, many Luther experts still hold to the belief that he did nail the theses to the church door. But here, in summary evidence, is Isolo's evidence. The first written account of the alleged event appeared for the first time only after Luther's death. Luther himself never, never commented on nailing anything up in 1517. Surely he would have mentioned it if it had happened, one would think. Well, the dispute isn't over whether Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the door. I'm sorry, the dispute isn't over whether Luther had written the Theses and published them that year, but over whether he nailed them to the door. That's a different story. He certainly did publish them that year and, and um, submit them to his superiors. It is also very interesting that there was no open discussion of these theses in Wittenberg. No original version of the theses with nail marks in it can be found. This could, however, merely mean that no one at the time thought about preserving it. Although it would probably be worth millions today, they might not have seen it as something that would have future value. And of course, not too many Germans think like Jews. So that argument is really pretty much a, a, a moot point. Announcements of upcoming disputes were said to have been regularly hung on the door of the castle church, but public, publicly hanging up the theses without waiting for a reaction from the bishops, who they would be first submitted to, could have been seen as a clear provocation of his superiors. Luther would not have done that, because at this point, he only wanted to clear up some misunderstandings 
as he perceived the situation to be. Now, now that argument sounds kind of tenuous, but it is valid. Martin Luther's um, original intent was to convince the Catholic Church that it was doing things wrongly according to the Bible and that it should reform itself by changing the way it did those things. That was also the original intent of America's founding fathers, who sought to redress grievances with the king. So at first, they worked within the system. It's the same thing with Martin Luther. At first, he worked within the system. So nailing the theses on the door would indeed be seen as a challenge a public challenge to his superiors and an act of rebellion, that wouldn't get him anywhere. But if he simply published the theses and submitted them to his superiors, that then he's seeking to redress grievances, to have grievances redressed within the church. So that argument has merit, whether it's true or not. One thing is certain. Luther wrote a letter to his superiors on October 31st, 1517, in which he denounced the sale of indulgences and asked for repayment and removal of the misunderstandings. With the letter, he included 95 theses, which were to be a basis for further discussion. So, did he nail or did he nail? Today, the majority of Luther researchers see it as fact that Luther did not nail his theses to the door of the castle church on that day. But the pictures of Luther nailing the theses to the door of the church still constitute the most common way in which most people visualize Martin Luther and the Reformation. And from here, Tiffany goes into a series of um, shorter stories, which um, are more or less fables about Martin Luther, and, and like George Washington, cutting down the cherry tree. There's only a few of them, but they're interesting, and we'll proceed with them. It, it's, um, it's interesting for nothing else. It, it's also um, interesting to note the way a, a learned man may write, and, and, and that some of his prose language even may be poetic, and, and how it's misinterpreted later on. And, and we see that in this first one, this first story, which Tiffany subtitles, The Inkwell and the Devil. Another legend about Luther has him throwing his inkwell at the devil. From, from his childhood, devils, demons, and other evil spirits pestered Luther. He reported such occurrences during his later life as well. His fears of demonic attack increased, especially during his time of seclusion at the Wartburg. Luther ascribed his depressions and mood swings to these evil spirits. This fear of Satan 
was not unusual for the Middle Ages and was rooted in a religious upbringing within the home and its school. And, and I wouldn't, I, I, I've known many people who, who have had similar experiences. I wouldn't deny them. Demons are a part of our scripture and their existence. And, and if that's what a Christian man or woman perceives, so be it. But sometimes Luther is writing poetically and people are interpreting it as something else. And I believe that's the case here. And Tiffany agrees. He says, Luther, we are supposed to believe, defended himself against the devil's hostility through prayer, cheerful song, or more dramatically, by throwing objects at his hellish enemies. It is said, that Luther, awakened by Satan during one night, defended himself by hurling an inkwell at the devil. Luther's statement that he had driven the devil away with ink could, however, be ascribed to his translation of the Bible rather than nocturnal battles involving physical inkwells. And Tiffany goes on to say that it's an it's probably a tourist attraction, right? The ink stain on a wall in Luther's room at the Wartburg can be ruled out as evidence because of reports the stain is recent or has been touched up. Luther wrote that he drove the devil away with ink, and by that he's simply writing poetically that he is... Um, by writing his 95 Theses and his other works that he drove the devil away. And, and, and um, well, in Luther's perspective, he drove the devil out of Germany because he saw the papacy and the Roman Catholic Church as the devil and, and a tool of the devil. So <laughs> Luther's writing poetically and, and talking about his life's work He's not talking about spooks in the night. Emperor Karl at Luther's grave. After the defeat of the mostly Saxon Protestants in the Battle of Muhlberg during the Schmalkaldic War, yeah, that's a word, Schmalkaldic War, 1546 to 1547, the imperial army, mostly Spaniards and mercenaries, we will get into this later in this series, stood before Wittenberg city gates, and the elector was forced to sign the city's surrender. In doing so, he abandoned his rights as ruler of the city. The emperor, Charles V, Charles or Karl in German, rode into the city on May 23, 1547, and visited the castle church grave of his old adversary, Luther, who died in 1546, I believe. This occurrence has led to the emergence of numerous legends. One tale states that while the emperor was at Luther's grave, he was urged to belatedly give the heretic's remains to the funeral pyre. The emperor is supposed to have answered, he has met his judge. I only wage war with the living and not with the dead. This makes a nice story, but it cannot be supported by facts. Johann Bugenhagen, who wrote a detailed report of the emperor's visit, never mentioned anything about such an incident. 
Another variant of the legend states that Luther's corpse was removed and reburied in a safe and little-known spot before the approaching Imperial Army got to town. Clarity was brought to this manor on February 14, 1892. On that day, the grave in the castle church was opened, and it was determined that the grave is the great reformer's last resting place. Another antidote offered by Tiffany, Luther and the Trees. Trees have always, in many religions, been mythological symbols. Druids worship them, and the Bible has its tree of knowledge and tree of life in Eden. In our own time, there are many legends about trees, like the apple tree under which Sir Isaac Newton sat, which supposedly inspired his theory of gravity. Similarly, there are many tree legends associated with Luther, a man who enjoyed spending his free time in gardens among trees and flowers. Everywhere you go in Luther country, there are oaks, basswoods, or beech trees tied to various legends about him. In particular, many stories are told about the Luther Oak in Wittenberg. The spot in Wittenberg, where the current Luther Oak stands is where Luther supposedly burned a papal bull of excommunication and books by his opponents on December 10, 1520. The original Luther Oak in Wittenberg was chopped down during the Napoleonic Wars because there was a shortage of fuel. It is not known when that tree was actually planted, nor by whom. The current Luther Oak was planted in 1830, in 1904, an unknown person tried to cut it down, but it survived. Today, the tree suffers from air pollution. Many other legends about Luther and trees are circulated. One of the best known is the famous saying, if I knew that tomorrow was the end of the world, I would plant an apple tree today, attributed to Luther. One must bear in mind, however, that the first written evidence of the saying dates from 1944. One related legend goes like this. A Wittenberg student, who was an enthusiastic follower of Luther, was in love with a girl whose grandmother was equally devoted to the old church. On the day of the book burning, the woman supposedly wandered to that spot with her granddaughter out of curiosity. There they ran into students who were excitedly talking about what Luther had done. The grandmother was overcome with anger and rammed her walking stick into the ground, while swearing the student would not be allowed to marry her granddaughter until the stick had turned green. The student secretly pulled out the dead stick and planted an oak sapling on that very spot. The following spring, the student reported that this miracle to the grandmother, no doubt the boy and girl lived happily ever after, and the sapling became the original Luther Oak. This could even be true. We'd like to think so. These are Tiffany's words, right? But probably it is one of those stories that is too good to be true. So we see all the urban legends, or some of them, that sprung up around Martin Luther. In 1520, some sources say it was during the years 1520 or 1521. Luther wrote three great pamphlets addressed to the Christian nobility of the German nation. The Babylonian captivity of the church and the freedom of a Christian man. 
thereby cutting himself off from Rome. The Inquisition against Luther was taken up again in 1520, partly because of these works. On June 15, 1520, came the first papal bull warning of potential excommunication. A final, well, well, he's already been condemned, right, in 1517. A final bull of excommunication followed on January 3rd, 1521. Legend has Luther burning the aforementioned bull. Along with the Book of Church Law and many other books by his enemies on December 10th, 1520, in Wittenberg, where the aforementioned Luther Oak stands today. He is said to have yelled, because of you, godless book, have grieved or shamed the holiness of the Father. Be saddened and consumed by the eternal flames of hell, because you, godless book, have grieved or shamed. This behavior caused a conclusive and irrevocable break with Rome. The emperor, however, felt forced to be somewhat tolerant of Luther because of the pro-Luther mood in the empire and because of the influence of various princes who were hoping to weaken the pope's political influence through Luther. So we see that Luther was taken advantage of by these princes for political reasons, which may be one of the reasons for his success, that he had those princes on his side against the Pope, even though the princes may not have had the best of intentions or were doing it for Christian reasons. They certainly were not. As a result, the rebel was guaranteed safe escort on his trip to the imperial deed of arms. Of course, Jan Hus, or Jan Hus, was guaranteed safe conduct, and we all know what happened to him. But Luther, for whatever reason, accepted the arrangement. And I'm sorry, I said that Luther was condemned in 1517. I was wrong. That's where he actually um, published his 95 theses. He's about to be condemned in 1521. Luther in Worms. Luther arrived in Worms as part of a triumphal procession. The emperor and church officials expected him to recant his thesis while at the diet, while at the meeting. Luther's books were placed on a table. He was then asked if they were indeed his works and whether he wanted to recant any of his writings. Luther requested time to think over his reply, and the next day he answered with the well-known speech, unless I am convicted by scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of the popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything. For to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me. Amen. Legend has it that at the end of the speech, Luther said, Here I stand, I cannot do otherwise. God help me. Amen. However, those words were probably only added to make the speech somewhat more interesting. Although he was then condemned by the emperor as a heretic, 
Luther was permitted to leave it home in accordance with the safe passage. But near Eisen, Eisenach, a band of masked horsemen seized Luther and took him to the castle of Wartburg. Sinister as this development sounds, it was actually ordered by Luther's friend, Frederick, the Elector of Saxony, because he feared for Luther's safety but dared not protect him openly. Luther spent ten months in the castle, using the time to translate the New Testament from Greek into German, incidentally thereby introducing the high German language of modern times. And, and yes, the New Testament can be translated in ten months if the translation is uncritical and if there's no examination of competing manuscripts. In March 1522, Luther returned to Wittenberg to begin organizing his new church. Perhaps, unfortunately, Luther's growing stubbornness resulted in the loss of large regions to rival reform movements, splintering the Protestant movement. In 1525, he married a former nun, Katharina von Bora, and they developed a happy household with six children of their own, as well as several orphaned nephews and nieces, plus student boarders, and a number of poor students whom Luther supported. So we see that Luther practiced the Christianity which he had preached. The following excerpts, and that's the end of the article by John Tiffany, the following excerpts on the life of Martin Luther are from a voluminous work entitled History of the German People at the Close of the Middle Ages by Johann Janssen, translated from the German by A.M. Christie. And this is from volume three of the 16-volume work, which we plan on quoting extensively throughout this series. The life of Luther is presented in this volume within a presentation of what the authors called the later German humanism, as humanist philosophy was already well-developed in Europe at this time and had also already become prevalent in the courts of church bishops and the popes as well. There were many humanist philosophers, poets, right in the De Medici court while the, while the De Medici popes sat in Rome. For now, we will omit this background, this background on humanism, and present the paragraphs on the life of Luther. Later on in this series, we shall return to examine the greater historical context humanism in the medieval church. The authors introduced the section with Luther's life story, first by stating that at the beginning of this year, referring to 1517 AD, the preaching of indulgences was started, and almost simultaneously, the church was violently convulsed by the appearance on the scene of the Augustinian monk. Martin Luther, then under the subtitle 
of Luther and Hutton. I thought his name was Johann. It's not his Ulrich. Ulrich von Hutton. Under the subtitle of Luther and Hutton, we find an account of Luther's life and early career. The reference to Hutton is a reference to the earlier German reformer, Ulrich von Hutton, who died in 1523 and who seems to have been an important catalyst for Luther and a link between Renaissance humanism and the German Reformation. Here we shall also learn that Luther had his start as a humanist and a doctor of law. Luther did not start studying for the priesthood. He had a, um, a doctorate in law, and he was a humanist poet before he ever had his experience, with led him, which led him to the monastery. Only later, with the lightning bolt described by John Tiffany and disputed, did Luther turn to Christianity. Beginning with um, volume 3, page 79, of the history of the German people at the close of the Middle Ages, we're going to quote several pages to understand young Martin Luther. Martin Luther was born at Eisenach on November 10th, 1483. His youth, passed at Mansfeld, was a period of hardship and suppression not so much on account of the poverty of his parents as from the extreme severity with which he was treated both at home and at school. He himself relates that his mother once whipped him till he bled, all about a miserable nut, and that another time his father punished him so cruelly that he was filled with hatred against him and was very nearly running away from home. At school, he once got 15 thrashings in one morning. And with all this beating and misery, he says, he learned nothing at all. This system of education developed a timid, nervous disposition and left no room for joyous disobedience, for joyous obedience, I'm sorry. It was well calculated to daunt and crush the passionate spirit of the boy but not to curb and direct it. In his 14th year, Luther was sent to the school of the Nobruder at Magdeburg, Magdeburg. Some of these German names are tongue twisters for me. I'm sorry. And in the following year, to the Latin school at Eisenach. So great was his poverty that he was obliged to sing in the streets to earn a crust of bread. His religious feelings were strongly influenced at this period by the solemn church services of the place and the religious plays performed there, and especially by the German hymns, in which the whole congregation used to join during the service. Luther was captivated by the ceremony, which is probably a reason why the Lutheran church later maintained so much of it. When he was about 16 years old, a great change took place in his life at Eisenach, owing to the kindness of Frau Kada, a rich lady of noble birth, who, who took him to live with her own family. 
she had taken a great fancy to him, says Luther's eulogist, Methusius, on account of his beautiful voice and his devout behavior in church. In 1501, Luther went to the monastery of Erfurt to study philosophy and law. In 1502, he took the degree of Bachelor of Philosophy and three years later that of Doctor, after which he was occupied for a short time in lecturing on the physics and ethics of Aristotle. At Erfurt, he pursued zealously the study of the classics. He read most of the works of the Latin authors, Cicero, Livius, Virgil, and Plotus. Livius is Livy, the historian of Rome, attended the humanistic lectures of Hieronymus Emser and distinguished himself so greatly, says his biographer, referring to Methusius, or, or Methesius, I'm sorry, that the whole university wondered at his intellectual powers. Among the younger humanists whose circle he joined, so Luther is as a young man, keeping company with humanists. Crotus Rubianus and Johannes Lange were his special friends, but he himself passed among his associates as a musician and a learned philosopher rather than as a poet. He joined heartily in all their social pleasures and delighted them with his singing and music. But he would often pass suddenly from mirth and cheerfulness to a gloomy, despondent state of mind, in which he was tormented by the searchings of conscience. In the year 1505, he sustained a great shock in the sudden death of a friend who was stabbed in a duel, and this must be the Alexis of the accounts which Tiffany had given. And in the same year, he was caught in a terrific thunderstorm, during which his life was in danger. As I hurried along with the anguish and fear of death upon me, he wrote later on, I vowed a vow that was wrung from me by terror. Soon after he gathered his friends together at supper, which was enlivened by lute playing and singing, and then informed them of the resolve he had made to renounce the world and become an Augustinian monk. Today you see me, he said, but afterwards no more. All the entreaties of his friends were useless. They accompanied him weeping to the doors of the monastery. It was characteristic of Luther that the only books which he took with him into his retreat were the pagan poets, Virgil and Plautus. What the Dominican monk, Peter Schwartz, said against exclusive devotion to the classics and the study of law was entirely applicable to Luther up to within the last years before the great crisis of his life, meaning the, the lightning bolt and is joining the monastery. How many men, quoting Peter Schwartz, how many men nowadays study poetry and poetizing, and how few study the holy scriptures? How many master the subtleties of law, and how few have any knowledge of the gospel? Ruslin in like manner, complained that the scriptures were neglected at the present day for the arts of rhetoric and poetry. 
while in all the Latin schools which adhered to the traditional church methods. The study of the Bible was carried on assiduously. It appears that in the schools which Luther attended, if we may believe his own testimony, and this is the historian doubting whether Luther's testimony is true, but we'll discuss that in a moment. The ancient classics alone were taught. When I was 20 years old, he's quoting Martin Luther himself, when I was 20 years old, I had not yet seen a Bible. I thought there were no other Gospels and Epistles besides those in the homilies. These words, says the historian, are the more astonishing, seeing that when he was 20 years of age, he had already been, for two years, a student at the Erfurt University, where there could have been no lack of opportunity for becoming acquainted with the Bible, which had been recognized, a recognized subject of study there ever since the middle of the 15th century. Of all the extant manuscript theological works in one of the town libraries of Erfurt, exegetical writings make up about one half. And in 1480, a scholarship was founded at the University of Erfurt for an eight years course of study of the Holy Scriptures, with some attention also to canon law. And and that's all well and good. What the translators miss is this. This is the um, very beginning of the 16th century, and for at least 300 years, and and from the time of the... um, schisms or or near schisms in the church with the Huguenots and the Waldenses and other such sects. From that time, the Roman Catholic Church actively sought to suppress the Bible in the hand of lay people. And they forbid, they had already forbidden translation of the Bible into vernacular tongues. So Luther, being a student of pagan literature, if he wasn't enrolled in one of the official church programs so that he could learn the Bible their way, simply did not have ready access to a Latin Bible. It's that simple. If he was a student of the clerisy, that may have been a different story. And of course, he would have had access to the scriptures in Latin, or perhaps even in Greek, but certainly not in German. Yes, he must have known Latin. There's no doubt that he was well-learned in Latin, but being a student of, of, of secular studies, law, philosophy, He had no reason to come into contact with the Bible, and he certainly would have never come into contact with the German Bible. So it's very possible in that church environment, Luther not being a clerical student, would have never seen a Bible. That's very believable. Luther attests to it, understanding the climate, we can agree that it's very possible and we should not doubt Luther's attestation that the um, 
the prayer books for the churches would have been considered plenty for the average citizen. I entered the monastery, writes Luther, and renounced the world, despairing of myself all the while, in spite of the decided objections of his father, who mistrusted Martin's vocation for the monastic life, and who wished to see his son, his extraordinarily gifted son, loaded with worldly distinction and married to a wealthy wife. Luther took the vow of the Aramites of St. Augustine to live in poverty and chastity after the rule of St. Augustine until death. In opposition to the fifth commandment, his father said to him on his consecration as priest, you have forsaken your dear mother and myself in our old age when we might have expected some help and comfort from you, seeing how much your studies have cost us. And and the Ten Commandments are numbered differently among diverse sects and Bible versions. Clearly, the commandment, which we understand as the fourth commandment, to honor thy father and mother, is what is being referred to. It was not in response to a real call. This is the commentator's, the, the historian's commentary. It is not in response to a real call that Luther had entered the monastery, but in obedience to a sudden, impetuous resolve, formed after an attack of morbid discontent with his inner spiritual condition and the means by which, after having become a monk, he endeavored to obtain the peace, he lacked only aggravated his condition. And this assessment is not necessarily true, but rather seems to reflect a bias which belongs to the historian. He fell victim to a morbid hyperscrupulousness, which was no doubt fostered in great measure by the isolation of the, mona- of the monastic life. Simple, unquestioning obedience to the rules of his order became distasteful to him. It was his duty to say his hore, hore are the official Roman Catholic prayer ritual. It was his duty to say his hore daily, but carried away by his passion for study, he often let weeks go by without taking his breviary in his hand, his prayer book. Then he would try to make up all at once for past omissions. He would shut himself up in his cell, touch neither food nor drink for several weeks, go without sleep, and torture himself to such an extent that he was once nearly losing his senses. The prescribed rules of ascetic practice did not satisfy him. I imposed myself on additional penances, he writes. I devised a special plan of discipline for myself. The seniors in my rule objected strongly to this irregularity, and they were right. I was a criminal self-torturer and self-destroyer, for I imposed on myself fastings, prayers, and vigils beyond my powers of endurance. I wore myself out with self-mortifications, which is nothing less than self-murder. The old monastic proverb was amply verified in Luther. In a monk, everything but obedience is despicable. 
Like all hypersensitive souls, he saw in himself nothing but sin. In God, nothing but wrath and vengeance. With this agony of remorse, there mingled no feeling of love for God, no childlike hope in his mercy through Christ. The thought of the deity awoke no emotion in him but that of unmitigated fear, and he was forever seeking to appease the divine wrath by his own righteousness, by the power of works, which should bring him into a condition of sinlessness. I was a most outrageous believer in self-justification, a right presumptuous seeker of salvation through works, not trusting in God's righteousness, but in my own. In this way, he came gradually to a condition of hopeless despondency and despair. That, as he says, he actually hated God and raved against him and hated his own existence, often wishing that he had never been born. From misplaced, <clears throat> from misplaced reliance on my own righteousness, he says, my heart became full of distrust, doubt, fear, hatred, and blasphemy of God. I was such an enemy of Christ that whenever I saw an image or a picture of him hanging on his cross, I loathed the sight and I shut my eyes and felt that I would rather have seen the devil. My spirit was completely broken and I was always in a state of melancholy. For do what I would, my righteousness and my good works brought me no help or consolation. Strange to say, Luther, in later years, attributed this melancholy spiritual condition to the influence of the church's teaching concerning good works. While, as a fact, he was in complete opposition to this as to all other doctrines of the church. In the next paragraph, the historian disagrees with Martin Luther and Luther's um, view of both church doctrine and of himself. And I will um, discuss that disagreement after reading the paragraph. Any manual of religious instruction and devotion might have taught him that the church repudiated all Pharisaic doctrines of self-justification and considered Christ and his merits as the sole foundation of Christian righteousness and the grace of Christ as the source of all life and action that was pleasing in the sight of God. What Well, the fact that the church was selling indulgences <laughs> basically sets all, anything that was already in their catechisms at naught. And I just had to interject that one comment. And above all, in the eyes of the church, ascetic practices were merely means to an end, wholesome discipline for weakening and overcoming sinful inclinations with the help of grace. I have to... Um, I'm sorry, I have to add one more comment here. Erasmus, the 14th century Greek scholar and former monk himself, 
had written explicitly about all the perverted things that were going on inside of some of the monasteries. So these ascetic practices that this evidently Catholic historian, um, he seems to be Catholic-leaning anyway in, in his assessment of Luther, these ascetic practices for the doing away of weaknesses of the flesh, well, that's Erasmus had a whole different idea of what was going on inside of these monasteries, even though that does not come out in, in the, um, not that I've ever seen in the writings of Luther, but that's okay. In the eyes of the church, ascetic practices were merely means to an end, wholesome discipline for weakening and overcoming sinful inclinations with the help of grace, but in no way meritorious actions on which man could build hopes of acceptance with God. Man must fix his faith, hope, and love on God and not on anything he created, so runs the Catechism of Dietrich Rode, published in 1470. He must trust in nothing but the merits of Christ. In the Seelenwurz Gartlein, one of the most complete and widely used prayer books of the time, there stands the following injunction. You must place all your hope and trust on nothing but the merits and death of Jesus Christ. Man must die trusting in the mercy of God and not in his own good work, says Ulrich Croft in his Spiritual Conflict of the year 1503, written in the year 1503. Amongst all the books recognized and used by the church, whether learned works or religious tracts for the people, there is not a single one in which the doctrine of justification through Christ is not clearly set forth. And that's fine, but that's not really the church practice and what it leads young men and women to believe. Here, the translators are disputing with Luther based, on, based upon what some German scholars had written earlier in church documents or catechisms. We would not doubt, <clears throat> since they were for a long time, struggles and sects put down by the church and the suppression of the translation of scripture into the common tongues, that there were not many men who came to these conclusions earlier than Luther. But at this point in his life, Luther was not yet a Bible scholar and his perception was the perception of the common churchgoer rather than the scholar of catechism. He was still new to the monastical life. It seems that the translators are defending the Catholic Church's church from its doctrines without realizing that the church's dogmas were quite different. Any belief in salvation through sacraments, through indulgences, and through asceticism and other so-called works does indeed paved the way for a belief in self-justification, that you have to earn your salvation in some degree, that you have to do something. You have to live this ascetic life. You have to conduct 
this sacrament or that sacrament. You have to repeat the hore or, or the um, the daily prayer ritual that that the monasteries had imposed on monks and that the Catholic Church imposes on on, on priests. Those things. The idea that you have to perform those that those things, the penances, the, the 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 vigils, all of that paves the way to a belief in self-justification. Whilst this condition of spiritual despair and self-torture continued, Luther found no comfort or relief in receiving the sacrament. Twice at Erfurt and once in Rome, he sought alleviation of his misery by making plenary confession, but it was all in vain. His whole nervous system was so strained and overwrought that when he was at Rome, as he wrote in later years, he almost wished that his parents were dead so that he might have the joy of releasing them from purgatory by his good works and his masses. And, and of course, some of what Luther writes in this regard could very well be anti-Catholic propaganda and, and for the tool of, of convincing others to have a tool by which to convince others that these indulgences are evil the same way that the Catholics had cat propaganda to convince people to fork up their, their life savings to pay the indulgences. He says that he felt at that time that he might even have become a hideous murderer for the sake of religion had the opportunity been at hand. I should have been ready to kill anyone and everyone for daring to refuse obedience to one syllable from the Pope. And again, without the context, this may well be more propaganda on Luther's part, if not an overstatement of his feelings as a monk. Such a state of religious exaltation could not but be followed by a violent reaction. Racked thus in the innermost depths of his being and tortured to death by his conscience, Luther ended by passing over to the other extreme. If he had hitherto put overmuch confidence in his own good deeds, he now cast away all reliance whatever on human strength and righteousness in the work of salvation. He began to believe that man, by reason of inherited sin, had become altogether depraved and had no free will, that all human action whatever, even that which was directed towards good, was an emanation from man's corrupt nature, and therefore, in the sight of God, nothing more or less than deadly sin, that it was by faith alone that man could be saved. When we believe in Christ, we make his merits our own possession. It was thus that he now taught. We put on the garment of his righteousness, which covers all our guilt and our condition of perpetual sinfulness, and furthermore makes up in superfluity for all human shortcomings. Hence, when, we once, when once we believe, we need no longer be tormented in our consciences. 
Be a sinner, if you will, he writes to a friend, and sin right lustily, but believe still more lustily, and rejoice in Christ, who is the vanquisher of sin. And of course, that's a little extreme, and not what Paul of Tarsus would teach. From the Lamb that takes away the sin of the world, sin will not separate men, even though they should commit fornication a thousand times a day, and murderers as frequently. This new doctrine of justification by faith alone, Luther considered the central point of Christianity. It summed up for him the whole of Scripture. It was the truth which had long lain hidden on a shelf, he called it. In short, the new gospel, the only medicine for the salvation of Christendom. His teachings, he declared, contain gospel truth as pure and unadulterated almost as that of the apostles. What indeed did the word gospel mean but a new, a good, a joyful message or good news, the announcement of something that people rejoice to hear? This can never be laws or commandments, for the breaking of which we shall be punished with damnation, for no one would rejoice at such an announcement. The new doctrine began shaping itself gradually in Luther's mind in the year 1508. After his appointment to the professorship of philosophy at the Wittenberg University, founded six years before, this post had been conferred on him by the elector Frederick of Saxony at the instigation of Luther's intimate friend, Johann von Stoppitz. Luther's departure from Erfurt according to contemporary records, the year 1508, was not a matter of regret to the brothers there. For Luther was always in the right, in all disputations, and he dearly loved disputing. It's hard to tell whether the, um, the historian is quoting from some paper from someone that Luther wrote so from someone that corresponded with Luther or someone who was contemporary at the time, or if the historian is simply being sarcastic, but he is making a quote. The English translator of this book had um, made a lengthy footnote at the beginning of his section on the life of Martin Luther, which admitted that the footnotes for the section on Martin Luther lead to obscure German books which are no longer available or which are never translated into English, and, and therefore he did not reproduce the footnotes, except to refer one to the appropriate pages in the German any original German work, which, of course, is no longer available. This was translated over a hundred years ago. At Wittenberg, Luther devoted himself chiefly to biblical and theological studies. He was invested with the dignity of Doctor Divinity in 1512 and lectured to admiring audiences on the Pauline letters. The letters to the Romans, especially, and yes, it says letters to the Romans. The Psalms and St. Augustine, of course, there was only one epistle to the Romans that we, that we have in our scriptures. 
He also gained great fame as preacher in the cathedral church. This brother has deep-set eyes, said Martin Pollock, the first rector of the Wittenberg University of Luther. He must have wonderful thoughts and ideas. That's a strange statement, by the way. Already several years before the outbreak of the indulgence controversy, Luther had put himself outside the teaching of the church by his opinions on grace and justification and the absence of free will. And in the year 1515, according to the testimony of his eulogist, Mathesius, he was denounced as a heretic. Our righteousness, he said in a sermon preached at Christmas 1515, is only sin. Each one of us, therefore, must accept the grace offered by Christ. Learn, dear brother, he wrote on April 7, 1516, to the Augustinian George Spenline at Memmingen. Learn to despair of thyself and say, Thou, Lord Jesus, art my righteousness. I am thy sin. Thou hast taken what is mine and given me what is thine. Only through Christ and through utter abnegation of thyself and thine own works shalt thou find peace. He was already so firm, well, for a man that couldn't find peace in his own works. Luther wrote an awful lot of books, right? He was already so firmly convinced of the truth of this teaching that he added an anathema to it. Cursed be whoever does not believe this. His tenets are expressed in the most outspoken terms in a report of a disputation held at the university in September 1516, on which occasion he had asked to be elected president of the debate, an honor which ought to have, by right, been conferred on another member. In this discussion, the following thesis, among others, was defended. Man commits sin whenever he acts according to his own impulses, for of himself he can neither think nor will rightly. Of the 29 theses which he wrote out for a doctorandum, the fourth runs thus. The truth is that man, after having become a corrupt tree, can, will, and do nothing but what is bad. And, and I believe that Martin Luther certainly misunderstood that parable. And the fifth, it is false to say that the will of man is free and can decide one way or another. Our wills are not free, but are in captivity which is um, somewhat true, depending on the perspective you, you, you look at it with. It was during the Lent of 1517 that he began preaching his new tenets openly among the people. In these sermons, he invaded fiercely against those vain babblers who had filled Christendom with their chatter, and he had misled the poor credulous folk with their pulpit utterances, telling them, that they ought to have or to cultivate good wills, good intentions, good ways of thinking, where no will whatever existed, Luther taught them that God's will was best of all. 
Already in July 1517, three months before the beginning of the indulgence controversy, Duke George of Saxony expressed his fears of the effect of such teaching on the people. When Luther proclaimed in a sermon preached at Dresden on July 25th, by desire of the Duke, that the mere acceptance of the merits of Christ ensured salvation, and that nobody who possessed this faith need doubt of his salvation. The Duke said, more than once at table, in serious earnest, he would give a great deal not to have heard this sermon, which would only make the people restive and mutinous. Luther's doctrines, for which he thought he found support in St. Augustine, had spread through the whole University of Wittenberg, so he writes, as early as the year 1516. It was October 31st, 1517, that they began to be disseminated throughout Germany. It was on this day that Luther, incensed by the indulgence preacher, Johann Tetzel, affixed to the church door at Wittenberg, 29 theses attacking the virtue of indulgences. And yes, they said 29 and not 95. So here we shall leave off with the life of Luther for now. And while we come around to the argument as to whether Luther really nailed his theses to the door or not. The story is nevertheless representative of the firestorm which Luther's teachings would set off, as it is a direct affront not only to the authority of the church and its dogmas, but also a threat to the authority of the state, which we see was already realized by Duke George of Saxony. To fully understand Martin Luther, as well as this entire period of German history, we must understand the work of John Wycliffe and the earlier and notable Czech reformer, Jan Hus, who inspired the Hussite Wars in rebellion against the Roman Catholic Church in the opening quarter of the 15th century, a hundred years before Luther's own contentions for the church were published. Later, even Martin Luther considered himself to be a Hussite. We shall present pertinent information about these men in the near future. To understand the other side of the coin, in part two of this series, we shall discuss the profligacy and the lasciviousness of the papacy in the time of the De Medici's the extent to which humanism had infiltrated the courts of the Pope and the bishops, and the treachery of the Fifth Lateran Council. It may be subtitled, The Devil That Luther Resisted, or perhaps The Devil of Luther's Inkwell. Tomorrow afternoon, Sven Longshanks, Druids and Early British Christianity, Next Friday, 1 Corinthians, part 17. And next Saturday, Walking the Walk, Bible or Bureaucracy with Brother Ryan. Praise Yahweh. Thank you for listening, and good night.